Before we begin the message today, I feel like we need to take a moment to pray. I don't know who's hearing this message. I don't know where you're at individually here, uh, those who are gathered here, or those who are, are watching online. But in light of that song and, and the gospel itself, I want to offer you an opportunity. Now, there's, there's nothing magic in an altar call or, or anything like that, so I don't do those here because you need an interaction with God, not an interaction with me forcing you forward by emotion. But if you know that God is tugging at you today, if you recognize that something's moving, that He's calling you home, I want to invite you to just pray with me. Those of you who are already in this relationship, I want to invite you to pray along with me for those who might be praying this prayer. But if you have not come into a relationship with Christ, then you are on the outside of eternal life. You are on the outside of the relationship that can give you the fulfillment you have always longed for. Not an easy life, but a real life. And it's as simple as turning to Him and saying, Lord, I'm yours. Save me. So I'm going to pray and if this is new for you, or if you've been wrestling with this, or you've come to this place where you know God is calling you, then in your heart you can pray along with me. And again, those of you who are already in this relationship, pray with all you have for the salvation of those who are not. Father, on behalf of those who are, who are hearing your voice today, Soften their hearts. Lord, some are hearing you right now and they want to turn to you, so I want to ask that you would move in them, that they would receive this reality and simply pray from their heart, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. And I know I need you, but I can't have you on my own because my nature is for me and not for you. But I trust that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay my penalty. And just as you raised him from the grave, you are willing and able to raise me to a new life in him so that I can for the first time please you with my life and that's what i want to do lord i'm going to stumble but i want to give you all that i've got i'm all yours do what you will sweep out those dark corners that i've protected from you that every part of my being might be protected by you I receive Jesus today. In His name. Amen. For those who are praying for the salvation of others, don't stop. Right now, you probably have a name in your own mind of friends and loved ones 
that you know need a relationship with Christ, don't stop praying for them. God will give you opportunities. You don't have to force things. Just be real. Be a witness to what He's done in your life and pray that the Spirit will move in them. Let God take care of the rest. Thank you for indulging me. I pray that God will be glorified. Now let's get to the sermon. We live in a very confused society, do we not? We live in a society that's very confused specifically about marriage, sexuality, and family. And so as we are taking these three weeks, today and next week and and last week, to look at this idea of marriage, sexuality, and family and the illustration that God gives us in this this interconnected concept. Because of the confusion in the world, some of the things that I say, and maybe more specifically, some of the things that I read from God's Word, I'm going to do my best to try to focus your attention there, are going to sound harsh and judgmental, like some fire and brimstone pulpit pounder, can't pound a brand new pulpit you know it's it's crazy and I don't want you to hear it that way but what I do want is to help us all gain clarity to understand some things about God about his nature and character his relationship to his people and how that affects all of us in case you're not clear Marriage, sexuality, and family are not just about marriage, sexuality, and family. And the way we have done things in our society have, it's really messed messed up the plan. So I want us to try to get right. As we work through this, we'll, we'll look at some of the rules, if you will. We live in a society that doesn't like rules too much. Although I've watched enough football games to see people complain about the calls of the officials because somebody's not following the rules. That same reality applies in every aspect of life. There are rules. I'm going to say that again and hopefully get more than one amen out of it. There are rules. But I don't make up those rules, and you don't make up those rules, and the government doesn't make up those rules, and the church doesn't make up those rules. The designer of all things, the creator of the universe, builds those rules into it as a reflection of his own character. The problem that we run into in the church today is the exact problem we run into in society. The difference is the church should be leading And we've been following. The problem is twofold. It's this. We don't know what the rules are. In fact, we even dismiss that there could be rules. And we don't know why the rules are. We don't know why God says what He says. 
And therefore, even when we hear the rules, they don't connect with our hearts. They seem to be just a list of do's and don'ts. If you've been around here at all, you know that I'm not that kind of pastor. I'm not going to give you a bunch of do's and don'ts for one very important reason. God doesn't. My job is just to connect the dots of what God has already said. What the Lord says in His Word is what matters. My opinion means nothing. But let's follow His Word. Our core reality today is this. God's standards of sexual integrity reflect and illustrate His own character. God's standards of sexual integrity reflect and illustrate His own character. Now, I'm going to work really hard to, to strike a balance here where I can be clear and specific and yet not indelicate. So uh, understand that there are going to be some things that I say that you will be uncomfortable with. That's okay. I'm trying to make you uncomfortable with the truth. But I don't want to be indelicate. I don't want to offend modesty. Because the Bible is not indelicate. But there are times when the directness of God's language, out of necessity, because we need it, and out of choice, because God sovereignly ordains it, is direct enough that our sensibilities are offended. We don't need to worry about our human sensibilities. We want to know God's heart. So with that, let's press forward. First thing I want you to see, and you can write this down in your programs, is that God's commands are not capricious or random. They're not capricious or random. In other words, God's not just making this stuff up, just going to pull it out of a hat. Hey, let's see if I throw this at him, we can really mess him up, right? And sometimes we get that image. The world likes to tell us that God is this cosmic killjoy who just wants to have you be a bunch of repressed, uh, you know, we, we like to throw the word fundamentalist out as, as a pejorative term. I would take issue with that. We miss out on the history of the meaning of it. But, but we have this idea that God just wants everybody to be repressed and, you know, have that, you know, puritanical, another term we use pejoratively, and I would take issue with that as well. The, this idea that we don't do anything fun. I have a, a friend who, uh, when we were in high school, used to have a t-shirt that said, if it tastes good, spit it out. We kind of look at that as God's law for us. If it feels good, avoid it. That's not at all what God is telling us in His Word. But if it feels good, if it tastes good, if it seems good to us, that's also not an effective standard for right and wrong, for good and bad. Some things can taste good and kill you. The reason my friend had that t-shirt is because obesity is a major problem in our society, and he had loved ones, including his father, who died of heart disease. And so he took diet very seriously at that point in his life. He may have relaxed a little since then. We as the church, as those who represent God, have often gone so far in trying to embellish what God says that we have given a prudish picture of God's commands. God 
It's not a prude. God is God. So what he commands is good and right and true, and it is logical. This is not, <laughs> this is not a blind faith that we follow, but a reasonable faith. God gives us commands for his glory and our good, and the history of his relationship with his people gives credence to the truth of those commands. God's commands are not capricious or random. Notice this, the law of God reflects the character of God. The law of God reflects the character of God. Romans 7 verses 12 to 14 says that the law is good and spiritual. Psalm 119 is a love song to the word of God, to the commands of God. As David sings the praises of God's commands, we act like that's some heavy burden. Turn, if you would, to Psalm 119. If you're not familiar with your Bible very much, the uh, Psalms are in the, just about the direct middle. <clears throat> when you find Psalm 119, it's the longest of all the Psalms. It's actually the longest chapter in the Bible. Interesting that the longest chapter in the Bible is devoted to the beauty of God's Word. But turn to, uh, to verse 137. Psalm 119, starting with 137. The psalmist writes, You are righteous, Lord, and your laws are right. You are righteous, Lord, and your laws are right. Right out of the gate here, we see that the nature and character of God is reflected in His laws. You are righteous, your laws therefore are right. The statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. My zeal, my, my passion or enthusiasm wears me out for my enemies ignore your words. Have you ever felt that way? Where it's just exhausting how much the world ignores God's word. And you want them to see it. And you want to see a more righteous uh, society. And it just wears you out as you're passionate for seeing God's word prevail. And those who don't know God ignore it. My zeal wears me out, for my enemies ignore your words. Your promises have been thoroughly tested. This is reasonable. And your servant loves them. Though I am lowly and despised, I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is everlasting and your law is true. Trouble and distress have come upon me. But your commands... Give me delight. It's not burdensome. It's the delight that we find in God's word that carries us through the distress. 144, your statutes are always righteous. Give me understanding that I may live. Turn back a hundred chapters to Psalm 19. One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 19 begins with the examination of God's creation. And as, as David observes the glory of creation, he sees God in it. I'm reminded of what we read in Romans 1 earlier. That God has revealed Himself, His invisible qualities, clearly visible 
in the created world, in His created order. But after observing the beauty of creation and the glory of God in it, you get to verse 7, and David sees something greater. Having observed this awesome glory of God in creation, he now says, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. God's law reveals and reflects God's character. Notice this. Sexuality cannot be separated from marriage and family without innate and dire consequences can't be separated from marriage and family without innate and dire consequences. We have lived in a society that has worked hard to separate these concepts. We have seen children as a burden, as a difficulty, that you try to fit in around the other more important things in life. When I get to where I want to be financially, when I get to where I want to be with my career, when I've accomplished all these other things and I'm done traveling and seeing the world, well, then maybe I'll settle down and have some kids. They're an afterthought. Because of that, then we decide also we want to separate children from sexuality. And we want to separate sexuality from marriage. And so in this sexual revolution, the moral revolution that we've seen through most of my lifetime, from the 60s and 70s till now, we've worked hard to turn society on its head and to separate godly sexuality from its godly context, making it ungodly sexuality. So we created easy birth control so that you can have your fun, so to speak, without the horrible consequences of getting pregnant. We've separated sexuality and family and marriage. But when we do so, we do so at our own peril. That same thing has led to the murder of millions of innocent babies in the womb. Because we've decided that our life is more important than their life. Our convenience, our fun, our rights matter more than theirs. All of this because we have separated sexuality from marriage and family. The consequences are dire. They're also innate. They are built into it. They're inherent. Notice, in, let's go back to Romans 1 so we can see this. <clears throat> Notice what Paul is telling us in Romans 1. God's wrath is being revealed it's being poured out on mankind. But notice the natural flow of these things. He starts with the gospel. 
He starts with the idea that the gospel is something not to be ashamed of, but it is something that gives power for salvation. In other words, it is the saving thing. It is our lifeline in this death that we call life. Then he says in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. People like us who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly seen. They've been made visible in the created order, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. God designed the world to point to Him. What David saw in Psalm 19 was that the heavens declare the glory of God. Before you ever have the scripture, you know. This is why even pagans find God, if you will, in nature. Now they may worship something that we've created in our minds, but God built Himself into everything. Everything that exists derives its being from the source of that being, the creator of all things. Therefore, what God has designed to work a certain way always works that way. Let me say that again because I don't want you to miss it. Sometimes we think this is just stuff that, that you know, we, we're supposed to believe. What God has designed to work a certain way always works that way. Therefore, when we don't do it God's way, we're not just offending this impersonal deity out there. We're actually fighting against the nature of all things. Mark this down. When we live contrary to God's design, we fight against basic reality. When we live contrary to God's design, we fight against basic reality. Paul goes on in Romans 1 to talk about the natural versus the unnatural. Before you even get to the commands of God, the law of God is built in to creation. Before it's revealed to Moses, before God gives the written word, His expectations are already hardwired in reality. Turn to Genesis 1. Keep Romans marked. We'll come back there. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. It's real easy to find. It's right after your table of contents. Did you know that your Bible has a table of contents? If you're ever not sure where to find stuff, that's where to go. Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, over all the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. God made us, and He made us with purpose, and He made us in His likeness, like Him, bearing His image, every person, not just Christians, not just churchy folks, but everybody, born and unborn, young and old, 
dark-skinned, light-skinned, every kind of in-between skin, you were created in the image of God. Verse 27, so God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God created your gender, your sexuality, your very biology, intentionally created by God. He sculpted you the way He wanted you to be. All of these things are built in to the natural order, the created order of things. So that when we live contrary to God's design, when we resist God's design, we fight against basic reality. How many of you know, I can, I can disagree with the law of gravity, but I am still bound by it. Right? I, I still am. Let's make it a little simpler. I can disagree with the speed limit, but I'm still bound by it. I can disagree with the stoplight downtown. I can choose to ignore it. But when I do, consequences follow because I'm still bound by it. Now, I may get lucky, so to speak, if I run the red light and nobody happens to be there to hit me. But I'm still fighting against what is laid out. Notice this next part. Not only is it true that we fight against basic reality when we are living contrary to God's design, when we live contrary to God's will, we incur God's righteous wrath. When we live contrary to God's will, we incur God's righteous wrath. So we are fighting against nature when we go against God's design, but God reveals His heart, His character in His law. We've already seen that. His commands are a reflection of His character. So that when we go against His will, His desire, His law, His command, the consequences are that we face His wrath. And it's justified wrath. It's righteous wrath. In the same way that a potter gets to determine the destiny of the clay it is molding, the clay doesn't get to talk back and argue. In the same way, we are bound by God's will to God's command. When we fight against God's design, we're going against the basic fundamental realities of life. When we go against God's commands, God's will, now we're fighting against God's person. And we incur His righteous wrath. Back to Romans chapter 1. That wrath is being poured out. It's being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Why? Because we suppress the truth by our wickedness. When we do our thing instead of God's thing, when we fail to give thanks to Him, when we fail to recognize Him as God, as Creator, not the big guy in the sky. That's not the same thing. Sure, I believe in God. You know, the big guy's on my side, right? You don't know Him if that's your attitude toward Him. If you know God, you fear God until you come into a relationship in which you love God. Once I realize that the one who is worthy of all fear has made me His child, not because I deserve it, but because of His grace given to me in Christ. Now, the one who created all things, the one whose wrath will purify and destroy all that is less than perfect, 
when I realize now that in Christ, He's on my side. Everything changes. And that fear is swallowed up in the understanding of His love. I remember years ago watching uh, the Chicago Bears, which all good Christians do. And uh, uh, as I was watching this game, my hero, Walter Payton, uh, was being tackled. Uh, it was by the Vikings. Not quite as hated as the Packers, but you know. So it, it, they're playing the Vikings, and, and Walter uh, gets tackled out of bounds, and they kind of rough him up a little bit, push him around a little bit. And Walter, who's about my size, roughly, pops up off the ground and shoves this linebacker who's like almost a head taller than him. Shoves him back. And the linebacker starts to come back after him. You're about to, they're going to throw hands here, right? We're going to have a thing, like a hockey fight in the middle of, of a football game. I went to a, a, a fight once and a hockey game broke out. But anyway, as, as this happens, Walter is, is, he's standing there. And up behind him comes big Keith Van Horn. Some of you are old enough to remember the 85 Bears and Keith Van Horn, who's about 6'8". Van Horn walks up behind him, and that linebacker just turns around and walks away. That's what it's like to know that the living God is on your side. He was your enemy. But in Christ, He's on your side. You have all the support in the world. Understand how sin works, though. When we are sinning, when we're going our way instead of God's way, whether we're talking about in, in the areas of marriage, sexuality, and family, or any other area of life, when we engage in my thing over God's thing, I'm fighting against the basic realities of life, and I'm putting myself at odds with the only omnipotent, omniscient being in the universe. That's bad math. Why would I want to be opposed to God? My hope is that as we walk through this, you'll be able to see more and more the reality of being aligned with God by faith. When we live contrary to God's will, we incur God's righteous wrath. Notice this. God's commands regarding sexuality apply generally to all people. Now, I want to make sure we get this. God's commands regarding sexuality apply generally to all people. We often get this idea that the rules that God has laid out only apply to Christians. Not so. They apply to everyone because as we've already talked about, they're built into the reality of the universe. So if we get sideways of God, we are sideways of creation's reality and we are incurring God's wrath. It does not matter... Whether you know it or not, what does Paul say in, in Romans 1? You're without excuse. Everybody has built into you the atheist, the evolutionist, the, the pagan, the Wiccan. Everybody has built into them innately a sense of right and wrong because of the image of God built into your soul. You can't escape it. Before you have the law, you have a conscience that God has given you. So when we who do not accept the law as unbelievers suppressing the truth by our wickedness, when we then do things that are contrary to the law and we're convicted by that, then we show that the law is built in. 
when we recognize that stealing is bad, killing is bad, cheating is bad. We, we can walk through the Ten Commandments and pretty quickly recognize most of them even atheists agree with. Why? Because God's built Himself into us, every one of us. But when we recognize that, then it should show us this separation. If we're paying attention, we begin to see that we fall short of the glory of God. And we need His mercy. Let me come back to this. God's commands regarding sexuality apply generally to all people. Mark this down. God's design for marriage, sexuality, and family is built into the created order. We saw that already in, in uh, just as quickly as Genesis 1. But we see it also in Romans 1. Since we're still there, let's take a look at it. Starting with verse Uh, 20 for since the creation of the world god's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse everybody say without excuse point to the person who's without excuse it's every single one of us it doesn't matter who you're pointing at so some of some of you are smart enough to be pointing at yourself only some of you But whoever we're pointing at, we're without excuse. Those people over there who sin that way that doesn't look like my sin, they're without excuse. Those people over there who do it a different way, they're without excuse. That person I see in the mirror every day, he's without excuse. None of us get a pass. God's commands apply generally to all people. Notice verse Uh, continue in verse 24 we'll jump ahead there therefore god gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another now notice how this falls into line with what he's saying he's talking about those who do not have the law and yet have a law unto themselves built in they're without excuse because god's god's uh, creation has revealed things about god So before you even have the law, God, in this oppression, this suppression of truth, gives them over to sinful desires of their hearts, including, as he listed out here, sexual impurity. Interestingly, it's the first thing he mentions. For the degrading of their bodies with one another, he continues, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. He spoke earlier about the idols that they formed. We don't generally do that consciously anymore. But boy, we sure have a lot of idols for people that don't carve them out of metals. We put all sorts of created things above God. Sometimes things that seem really good. We might put our mate above God. We might put our children above God. And so many lesser things that we can easily recognize as idols. But never ever trade even the good blessings of God for the person of God. God gave them over in their sinful desires because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts 
There's a difference here. He gave them over to their sinful desires, but then in giving them over to their sinful desires, because they're embracing that rather than him, he gives them over to shameful lust. This is a different level that we're talking about. It's a different symptom of the same cancer. Everything that you see here is not various levels of sin and that this sin is greater than another sin. It's all sin. It's all the same soul cancer with different manifestations, different symptoms as it comes out. Some of these lusts are particularly shameful, and he points out the difference between natural and unnatural. Even their women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In case you're not sure what he means by that, he clarifies by saying, in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. I want to make this really clear because I don't want it to be misinterpreted. He is saying specifically that homosexual activities, homosexual behavior is unnatural and opposed to God's will. I didn't say this. I didn't make it up. This is the reality that God presents us with. It is not more sinful than the sinful desires in the previous paragraph. It's just less natural. That which is outside of the created order is unnatural. That which is within the creative order and yet opposed to God's design and God's will is still damnable. It is still sinful and causes condemnation. He clarifies further. Uh, Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. The consequences are dire and innate. Sin is its own punishment. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. In other words, they don't think so good. Our reasoning capacity, our intellect is darkened by sin. It is depraved. It's twisted so that they do what ought not to be done. In other words, we think right is wrong and wrong is right. We live in a society right now where that is being promoted, that good things are being seen as bad and harmful. And bad things which are harmful are being promoted as virtuous. And what's really sickening is that it's happening in the church. I don't expect unbelievers to act like believers. They're still held to the same standards that God holds everyone to. But believers who choose to set aside God's word for our own understanding, there's a special kind of wrath that goes along with that. I can look at a neighbor kid who's behaving badly and shake my head and say, man, that's not good. That kid's a mess. Something wrong with that kid's medulla oblongata. But when it's my kid, I'm going to get fired up. We don't do that in this house. Then I put my foot down. Understand, church, judgment will come to the world 
but it begins with the house of God, and he is about to put his foot down with his church. We must stand for truth and love in its fullness. We cannot trade one for the other ever. We're here to reflect the full reality of Christ through the relationships that he gives us. We cannot love without truth. And if we have truth, it must always lead us to love. God's commands regarding sexuality apply generally to all people. His design for marriage, sexuality, and family is built into the created order. Therefore, mark this, getting sexuality wrong is innately harmful to both the individual and society. It is innately harmful to both the individual and society. As Paul has shown us in Romans 1, it affects all of us, and sin is its own punishment. Next point, God's commands regarding sexuality apply uniquely to God's people. God's commands regarding sexuality apply generally to all people, but they apply uniquely to God's people. Those who belong to God are specifically called to be holy. Write that down, I don't want you to miss it. Those who belong to God are specifically called to be holy. So, there's a lot of, uh, we're going to have you turn to Leviticus 18. You can go ahead and start thumbing there. I'm going to talk for just a minute, but that's where we're going. In Leviticus 18, there are a lot of laws, rules, specifically about sexuality. And this is one of those passages uh, that people like to to bang on and say, well, you know, if you're going to, you know, say we need to hold to Leviticus 18, then why don't you you know, avoid, uh, you know, why do you trim the hairs of the corner of your beards? Uh, why do you eat shellfish? Why aren't you keeping kosher, keeping all the Jewish law? That's a good point, if it made any sense at all. But it doesn't, so it's not. But it is a good question. Why not? Why don't we? Because the law that God gives in the Old Testament has different characteristics. There is the universal moral law, which pre-exists what he gives to Moses, and that we see summarized in, in, in uh, uh, the Ten Commandments. Before we get the details of the rest of it, we see things like no gods before him. Don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet, don't commit adultery, right? All of these things. But those apply to everyone in general. Before the law was given, sin was in the world. Before God said, okay, Israel, you're my people, don't do this, everybody needed to not do this. But then when he called Abram out, and he builds a nation through Abram, later Abraham, and the children of Israel come out of Egypt, and God introduces himself by his own personal name, I am, and he reveals himself to them through the law, what happens in Exodus and Leviticus is that God has an intimate relationship with this special group of people. And what is generally applicable to everyone is uniquely applied to those who belong to him. So the moral law, the universal law that predates that, applies to everybody. 
Then there are ceremonial laws that have to do with how Israel is to worship. That's not for everybody else because everybody else doesn't have a relationship with God. But in the Old Testament, for them to have a relationship with God, they needed to come to Israel. That's how he was revealing himself. And they needed to then submit themselves to that ceremonial law, all of which was pointing forward to Christ. But I don't have time to get into all that today. The third category is the civil law that was for how Israel was to govern themselves as a nation. That doesn't apply to us because, I don't know if you know this or not, we ain't them. So that applied to Israel as a nation in governing itself under God. There are principles we can draw from all three categories of law. All three categories of law reflect something about God. But what we see in all of that is that God's people have a unique relationship to God's law. Now, having said that, let's look at Leviticus 18. I'm going to let you read most of it for yourself because uh, you'll get the gist as we get going here. The Lord said to Moses, starting with verse 1, Speak to the Israelites, God's people, and say to them, I am the Lord your God. That is the premise for everything. I am the Lord. I am, and I am the Lord. The Lord who is in in control, in charge, the boss, the master, the king of all kings. But more than that, I am the Lord, your God. We have a unique relationship in that you belong to me, and I am also yours. Verse 3, you must not do as they do in Egypt. He's called them out of there where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan. That's where he's taking them, where I'm bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. And again, he reiterates the foundation of it. I am the Lord. Now he goes into detail here, and we'll read just some of it so you get a a taste of it, and then I'll let you do the rest on your own for homework. But he goes through details of what they are not to do regarding specifically here in this chapter, sexual immorality. And he's saying that Egypt and Canaan, they're, they're doing all these things, and they should not be. In fact, he's about to say This is why the land vomited them out. Because they were sinning against me. They didn't have the law, and yet they were without excuse. And in these practices that they were doing that were contrary to the basic reality of nature and contrary to God's will, they incur both the consequences that are innate and the wrath of God. But you, Israel... And I would paraphrase, and you, church, you're not like them. Don't be like them. I have called you out to be separate, to be holy unto me. And so he gives them the specifics of the law that already applied generally to all people, but they didn't get it. They suppressed the truth by their wickedness. Now he reveals it specifically and clearly to Israel. 
Verse 4, no one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. You see where this is going, right? We jump down to verse 14. Do not dishonor your father's brother by approaching his wife to have sexual relations. She's your aunt. Do not have sexual relations with your daughter-in-law. She's your son's wife. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. Right? We got this? It continues. Jump to verse 22. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Right before that, there's a verse that almost seems out of place because everything else here is dealing with sexual morality. But right before this detestable practice of homosexuality is brought up, he says, don't offer your children to Molech. Verse 21, do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So there's a lot built into that. We don't have time to develop it all. But Molech was the pagan god that was worshipped through human sacrifice of your children. You Take your baby, your young child, and you would sacrifice it on the altar of Molech. God hates that practice. It profanes him. In other words, it distorts the picture of who God is. It is a blasphemy. Worshiping a pagan idol is in itself a horrific crime to do so by offering our children, sacrificing them, is a more detestable crime. Why is it in the middle here? I, as I look at this, I'm trying to follow the flow of what Moses is, is writing. And a few years ago, we were going through the book of Leviticus in our sermon series. The only thing that I could come up with in looking at the logical flow that Moses has throughout all these things, why this comes back to what we're seeing, that marriage, sexuality, and family cannot be separated. If we don't see marriage as holy and sacred and sexuality as holy and sacred, we will not see children as holy and sacred. We live in a society where we have sacrificed our children to Molech. We have offered children through legalized, even, even celebrated abortion. We have offered our children to the God of self. It is inexcusable. Now, I'm going to come back to this at the end here. So ride with me. I know it's inevitable that as I'm talking to this group, and I don't even know who all is connected online virtually, that, that many of us here have been touched by abortion. Perhaps you've uh, succumbed to that yourself, or you have sponsored and supported that yourself. And you know the scars and the pain of this. I'm not in any way trying to heap guilt upon you. Please don't hear that. God's mercy is more. But if we don't talk about the truth, then many more will sacrifice children to Molech by, sa by separating marriage, sexuality, and family 
and they'll be fighting against nature and God. We have to stop. We have to stop in our own lives, in the church, and as salt and light, we can have impact on the society around us. As we look at this passage in Leviticus 18, it's summarized for us in verses 24 and following. Understand that all of these details of what he is forbidding, what God is forbidding in sexual practice, is for this reason. Verse 24, Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and laws. The native-born and the foreigners residing among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Everyone who does any of these detestable things, such persons must be cut off from their people. Keep my requirements and do not follow any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you came in and do not defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. Now, before we start turning this into some patriotic pray for America thing, that's not what it's about. Because America is not the people of God. I love this nation. I will always pray for it. Swore an oath to lay my life down for it. This nation is not the people of God. The church is the people of God. But just as those in Israel who did detestable things were cut off from their people, God used that as an illustration pointing forward to the eternal kingdom. And those who practice detestable things, not just the things on this list, but including the things on this list, those who live contrary to God's design and God's will are cut off from His people and cannot enter the kingdom of God. Pressing forward. God's commands are not capricious or random. Sexuality cannot be separated from marriage and family without innate and dire consequences. God's commands regarding sexuality apply generally to all people and uniquely to God's people Check this out. Getting sexuality wrong distorts the picture of who God is. Let me, let me back up because I know I missed a couple of points here for you. Brad, I'm sorry for that. So under God's commands regarding sexuality apply uniquely to God's people. Let's see the subpoints. First, those who belong to God are specifically called to be holy specifically called to be holy. I don't think it's on your list, but you can write down Leviticus 20, 26. I've called you out from among them. I have called you out from the nations. I have separated them, separated you from them that you should be mine. That's the concept of holiness. Turn to 1 Peter. And here we'll find our memory verse. But turn to 1 Peter, all the way toward the back of your Bible. If you get to the book of Revelation, that's the last book. Start to thumb backward to the left a little bit. 1 Peter chapter 1. 
Starting with verse 13. Man, I want to read this whole thing. We're going to start with verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Let me just tell you this. None of you now can live in ignorance. Because you know. Maybe you didn't know before. But now you know. What will you do about it? If you belong to Him, if you belong to God through a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you are not your own. You have been bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Verse 14, As obedient children do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Those who belong to God are specifically called to be holy. Holy means set apart, other, different. You are not to be like the world. We are all bound by the same law. Those in Christ have been set free from the law because He has paid your penalty. Now we no longer live by the Spirit of the law, but the Spirit of Christ, which is greater. You are, in a very real sense, above the law. That doesn't mean do whatever you want. It means what you now want is to please Him. As a, a Christian, I could do all sorts of things, right? Everything is lawful, but not everything is beneficial. Not everything that I could do <laughs> is something that I should do. Or that, as a child of God, I actually want to do. When I begin to realize that the temptations of the flesh are no longer my temptations, then that temptation has less power. When I start to realize, wait a minute, that's not really what I want. That's my old nature calling out to me. That's the enemy of my soul lying to me. I have a choice. I can listen to the voice of truth, or I can listen to the voice of my lying enemy. That seems like easy math. And when I begin to get that, the temptations have less power. Because I no longer live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who belong to God are specifically called to be holy. And the illustration... Mark this down. The illustration, that being of marriage, sexuality, and family, is specifically about our relationship with God. While the illustration is for the world, it's actually about us. So we have to embrace that and live it out. Those who belong to God are specifically called to be holy. The illustration is specifically about our relationship with God. Now to our final uh, main point. Getting sexuality wrong distorts the picture of who God is. This is why it's such a big deal throughout the Scripture. Why does God care who I sleep with? There's actually a book about that because people in the church don't get it. We're like, I, I don't know. Why does it matter? Why is God concerned about what goes on in my bedroom? Because it's a picture 
of Him. He owns you. More specifically, if you are in Christ, because now you are in a relationship with Him as His child, but prior to that even, He owns you as His creation. And He designed you for a purity, a wholesomeness, a beauty that reflects His character. So when we get this wrong, it is a big deal. Mark this down. Sexual sin is no small thing. It is blasphemy. Sexual sin is no small thing. It is blasphemy. This is why it, it carried the same sorts of punishments sexual sin did that blaspheming God and idolatry carried because it distorted the picture of who God is. When you did unrighteous things and you broke the law, there were a variety of penalties that went along with it. When you committed adultery or when you blasphemed God and committed idolatry, you would be subject to stoning. Why the parallel? Because the sexual act is designed to be in the context of marriage and the act itself, I don't have time to go into the details of this, maybe we'll talk about it on the podcast or something. The, even the act itself is to be reflective of God's relationship to His people. In the context for which God created it, it is beautiful and holy and sacred. It is not like Queen Victoria said that you know women in marriage should lie back and think of the empire. It's not like that. There is a beauty in godly sexuality in the context for which he designed it because it is, don't miss this now, it is an act of worship. So when we get it wrong, we are worshiping wrongly. When we are doing it for our own pursuits, we are worshiping an idol. we got to get this right. It's not a small thing. It's not something we can just give a wink and a nod to and turn our head and not pay attention. When we start to play with the rules that God has laid out, then we're getting sideways of the Creator of all things. I've got to press on. Sexual sin is no small thing and is blasphemy. Notice this. The immoral cannot enter the kingdom of God. The immoral cannot enter the kingdom of God. Let's look at a couple of passages just real quick because I want you to not miss this or not think that it's somehow my opinion. Uh, Turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you're still in uh, 1 Peter, just back up to the left. Matthew is the first of the Gospels, first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5 is a, a most misunderstood passage in the Sermon on the Mount. People very often look at this as some behavioral conduct guidance. It's much, much bigger than that. In Matthew chapter 5, uh, let's look at verses 27 to 32. Jesus talking. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. 
I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. How seriously does Jesus take it? Look at what he says next. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, straight out of the law of Moses. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus takes this very, very seriously. Um, turn to Matthew 15, since we're in Matthew. Peter is asking Jesus to explain a parable to him, and <laughs> Jesus says in verse 16, Are you still so dull? Matthew 15, starting with verse 16, Are you still so dull, Jesus asked them? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? The uncleanness of food is not really the issue. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. Eating with unwashed hands doesn't defile them. It's the heart. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Moving back to the right. There are many more passages I'd like us to look at. We're not going to. You've got some written down for you in your program, so you can do that for homework. Acts, Romans, the Corinthian letters, Galatians. When you get to Galatians, turn to chapter 5. It's interesting to me that, uh, that chapter 5 says what it says here about immorality because the reality of the chapter is that it's about freedom and not being bound by human regulation. So what Paul is saying is this is not human regulation. This is God's will for your life. Verse, uh, let's look at verse 16. So I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So that you're not to do whatever you want, because you have a confusion in you. Your flesh and your spirit desire different things. So you're going you're gonna to see and feel and sense the flesh. Forget about that. Don't be caught up in that. That's a slavery. They're in conflict with, with each other so that you're not to do whatever you want. Verse 18, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Elsewhere, he points out that the law is specifically for those who do not follow the Lord. For those who are not led by the, by the Spirit. Because the flesh is going to take you in a bad direction. So the law then has to restrain that evil. But if you're in Christ, led by the Spirit, you don't need that because you don't desire to do evil. Verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, 
idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. They can't. Because the kingdom of God is God's rule. If God is ruling, I can't live like an outlaw in that kingdom. I cannot enter His rule if I'm disregarding His will. But, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. You don't have to have a law against those things. You have to have a law against that wicked stuff. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with His passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. That leads us to our last point. (coughs) Sexual sin is no small thing. It's blasphemy. It distorts the picture of who God is. The immoral cannot enter the kingdom of God. And our obedience reflects our relationship to Christ. Our obedience reflects our relationship to Christ. Don't be confused. Our our relationship to Christ does not hinge on it. It's not earned by that obedience. But if we have that relationship, we are no longer under the law. We are no longer governed by, enslaved by our flesh. Instead, we live by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit and display the fruit of the Spirit that we just saw, it reflects, it demonstrates, it displays the relationship that we have as as a child of God. It shows that our identity has changed. We're no longer governed by the kingdom of darkness. That's not us. But we've been transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son. And now in Him, we are light in the Lord. Wrapping this up, we still live in a society that's very confused about marriage, sexuality, and family. We dare not be. You have heard today just a a brief, brief, I know it didn't feel brief, a brief touching on this topic. The Bible has a lot more to say about it. But it comes down to this. God's standards of sexual integrity reflect and illustrate His own character. If we're going to live for Him, it starts by being in that relationship with Him. Now, don't raise your hands. But just in your own mind, between you and God, How many of us have messed up? How many of us have gotten this wrong? Whether in the flesh and acting out on these things or in our understandings. How many of us have portrayed an image of who God is that is a lie, that is distorted and blasphemous because like Romans uh, 1 said, not only have we engaged in these things, but we've also tolerated them we've put up with it we've allowed others to think that it's okay to go against god 
even teaching that it doesn't matter. That puts us in a bad place because it means we're separated from God and subject to His judgment. But the gift is greater than the trespass. God has offered us His grace in Jesus Christ. God has said, your best efforts is like filthy rags, but I'm going to take it from you. And if you will receive my son, I will give you the right to become children of God. And I will put his robes of righteousness on you so that you will be dressed in Christ's righteousness alone. And all you have to do is receive him. When you receive him, he'll take out that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He'll change your desires Not that you will always get everything right and be perfect, but from this point on, you will have the Spirit of God in you, drawing you back, so that when you get off the path, He doesn't let you go. And He's given you a family, the church, as another illustration of His relationship with you as an individual. Because he has this relationship with us as a family. As we wrap this up, I want to call you to the holiness to which God has called us. We dare not claim to belong to him and ignore what he has said. Let's pray.